Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to a bonus episode of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. For this episode, we were joined by Lee Scott, author of King Klopp, Rebuilding the Liverpool Dynasty and Senior Analyst at Total Football Analysis. Lee gave us a fascinating insight into the wonderful world of football tactics. It was an excellent hour or so chatting to Lee, so without further hesitation, I will let him take the floor, so to speak. Enjoy. Thanks. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. We had, of course, intended to take a break of about two months to recharge the batteries, but too good an opportunity to turn down came up when Lee Scott, author of King Klopp, Rebuilding the Liverpool Dynasty and Senior Analyst at Total Football Analysis, posted on Twitter that he would be quite keen to, to come on some podcasts. Barlow spotted it, I spotted it, and we decided, you know what, this is more than worth it. Too good an opportunity to turn down. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Lee Scott to this special episode of the podcast. You could say an in-between episode, in-between seasons. Thank you for joining us, Lee. I have given you a very brief introduction there. But could you, I suppose, for the listeners, because I'm sure most of them will no doubt have heard of you, or at least of Total Football Analysis, one of the biggest analysis websites out there. Could you maybe tell us a a bit more about yourself, your new book, and where people can buy it, and I suppose why they should buy it? Just get straight in there. Yeah, of course. First of all, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, Hopefully, after we've recorded this podcast, you're still saying that it was worth coming back for this this one-off podcast and not having a break. I currently uh, I work as the the senior analyst, as you said, at Total Football Analysis. Previous to this, I've I've worked as a scout for various professional clubs. I've been an opposition analyst and a first team scout at different places, working in different ways with different coaches. Along the way, I've always I think I've always written. I've always written from a tactical point of view for different places. I wrote for Spiel for Lagerung for a while. I wrote on these football times, and the opportunity came up to create something that that. I felt was unique and kind of missing in the, the, the website world, if you like. And that was a, a website that had a tactical and, and data focus, but would look to be accessible to a wide range of people. So I think that when that opportunity came up, we kind of threw everything into that and that eventually became Total Football Analysis and it became what it is now with a, a weekly magazine and, and pieces that go up every day, something that we're very proud of. And that's kind of evolved now into a consultancy on the back end of that as well. So unfortunately, I'm sure some people probably have noticed that I don't have a lot of written work out there in the public sphere anymore other than my books, because a lot of the time I'm working, I'm working for clubs or for agents and on a consultancy basis. We've even got some professional players signed up that, that we kind of do analysis work for to help their development. Yeah, that's just kind of a brief rundown of, of me, if you like. As for, for the book at the moment, King Klopp, you can get that at any good bookstore on, on Amazon and Book Depository. It's fully available now on ebook or on in paperback. The book is designed to give you an accessible viewpoint into the tactical concepts behind Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool. So kind of a breakdown of exactly how they look to do certain things and why they're so important. But 
obviously I've broken down each little individual part, but what's so impressive about this Liverpool side is how it all operates together as a whole, I think. You clearly have sort of an extensive knowledge and background of the game. And I guess you were just saying then that, you know, you still, you still are doing skeleton work on behalf of clubs and players. But what tempted you to make that initial step from going from scouting for clubs into writing these sort of tactical, analytical books? I, I think, I mean, as I said, I've always kind of written in the background. So even when I was with clubs, I was still writing. Um, there, there were still blog posts out there. And I was still releasing scout reports and things like that because very rarely, I suppose, with the clubs that I was working with, when I was working with clubs, there was very rarely a, a danger of crossover, if you like. They were, I would never write about a player that the club was interested in in the public sphere, if you like. But eventually, I think the, the reasoning behind me going on to write books was, was purely because I was, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge reader. I, I read all the time. I read football books. It drives my wife crazy because there's that many books lying about the house. She's, she's talking about buying a new bookcase at the moment because there are so many. Um, but I wanted to read a book specifically at the time on Pep Guardiola's tactics. Now, you can look online and you look at places like Soccer Tutor. There are, there are coaching-specific ones that claim to give you an insight into how to coach like Pep Guardiola, but there's nothing that actually explained exactly how he sets his teams up and why and how everything works. And because that wasn't there, I kind of thought to myself, well, if it's not there and I want to read it, then why don't I just write it? So I contacted a publisher on a whim on a Sunday night. I sent an email to a publisher and I got back the automatic reply saying, we only review pitches quarterly don't expect to hear from us anytime soon so that was the Sunday night and I woke up on the Sunday morning and I already had a response for them saying that they were really keen for the book so I think even at that point I didn't know if I could write a book but I kind of threw everything into it it seems to have came off quite well so I think that it's just part of my overall path if you like in football that that the writer and everything else kind of goes hand in hand. I think it, I guess it's quite telling since then that you've you know it's been a year just over a year I think I'm right in saying since the Guardiola book and you've obviously got this Klopp one, yeah. uh, King Klopp and the third one which we'll sort of touch upon soon on Marcelo Bielsa and Leeds coming out in the not too far future. Just going back to King Klopp what would you say sort of makes your book stand out because I know there's a few other Klopp books I know maybe not as tactical but why should uh, Liverpool fans in particular consider purchasing your book would you say? I think there are a lot of really good clock books out there. I read a couple of them myself when I was doing research and quite a lot of them have, have really good information but most of it, the bits and pieces you can pick out from those books about specific tactical concepts and about game models and all these things that, that I tend to concentrate on. I think that there are just bits and pieces hidden in these books about that as they, they give more of a general biographical overview, if you like, of Jurgen Klopp. I think that it's natural. It's, it's really interesting, actually, because I think with Liverpool winning the league, you're seeing a slew of, of books coming out right now about that Liverpool side, about Jurgen Klopp. And that's a phenomenon that doesn't happen every year. Man City win the league. You don't get all these books suddenly appearing about Man City. There are some, but there's nowhere near the volume. It's almost the same kind of idea that you get in American sports where a team wins the, the World Series in baseball and all of a sudden there are four or five books published about that specific team and how it was built within six months, a team wins the Super Bowl, the same thing. 
and we've almost seen that with Jurgen Klopp this this year. Just now, all these books are coming out. I think that my book is designed to to, as I said, it goes into the, the detail, if you like, about the tactical concept. So the first chapter is is titled just Trent Alexander-Arnold. It's just very rare that I give a chapter just a player name if it's not specifically going to be all about that player. But it goes into the reasons why the last season Jurgen Klopp decided to move him into almost an inverted fullback position. So he played in the half space more than he played the traditional fullback slot and, and why that was important because it, it allowed Liverpool to almost become more of a controlling team as opposed to a team that played in transition and in chaos and how that positional tweak became so integral. And then we go on to talk about the role of the defenders, the role of the functional midfield, and of course the front three. So everything builds up together to give you an overview of exactly how and why things work tactically for Liverpool, which I think a lot of people might find interesting if they find my, my previous work interesting. Yeah, I think in many ways it's sort of almost natural to focus on Klopp and his personality, but I think, I think it's great that there's also a sort of tactical side of that that stays very much on point and focused on that without deviating into Klopp's exuberant personality. Just thinking that that third one, focusing on um, your third book, focusing on Bielsa and Leeds, 13 steps to the Premier League. Given sort of how renowned Bielsa's tactics and methods are, did researching him to sort of into more depth and to the depth, did that surprise you even more or...? Yeah, I, I think definitely that is the case. I think that I'm still currently in the research phase, just about to come out of that and start the, the writing the manuscript right now before the book is released next year. But I think that there is so much detail in Marcelo Bielsa's tactics with Leeds United. It's it's incredible. You could spend time talking about different rotations in the midfield and why they're important in terms of opening space or, or creating space for other players to move into, how players receive the ball in different areas and why they receive the balls in different areas and, and how that affects the overall structure of the team. Because as much as Bielsa is a coach who coaches players as on an individual basis, he does it from a viewpoint of the, the whole team, which is something that's really, really impressive. Every individual instruction that he gives to a player is designed to work and synchronise action with the rest of the team. So if you're telling the, the striker, if you're telling Patrick Banford that in this match you want him to play off the shoulder of the right-sided central defender, look to make those runs whenever the ball comes to the right-back, for example, he wants him to run in behind. Then you're telling the right-back that every time he gets the ball, the first look, the first progression is to look for that pass to Banford. And then you, you read in the... the there was an interview this week with Calvin Phillips at the Leeds midfielder and, and he talked about what exactly, I think the interview was in The Athletic and he talked about exactly when he gets the ball, what do you do first? He said, well, the first thing I do whenever I get the ball is I look for Pablo Hernandez because Pablo Hernandez makes something happen. So there are lots of different things to reveal and to peel back about the, the, the individual components from a tactical point of view. And I think there's so much there that it's easy to almost become overwhelmed by how much is there, but you have to you have to dive down into detail to a depth that you can kind of pull things away and then start to build back up the overall picture, if you like. This question wasn't in the running order, Lee, but I'm, I'm going to maybe put you on the spot a bit here, and apologies for that, but we've seen Leeds make the two signings um, recently, Rodrigo from Valencia and Robin Koch from Freiburg. How do you see the two of them 
settling into that Leeds team, are they typical Bielsa signings who will slot right in, or do you think they might be a natural period of acclimatisation, not just to the league, but to Bielsa's tactics? I think Robin Koch, first of all, from Freiburg, is a, a player who has a lot of similarities to Ben White, who obviously they had on loan from Brighton last mm-hmm. season. And there, there was a lot of talk about the fact that they were trying really hard to secure the signing of Ben White, but Brighton weren't budging on price. So, so that's something that didn't happen. I think that there's a very strong possibility that, that Robin Koch was number two on their list. So they've just gone down the progression in terms of looking for a player who fits the same kind of style of player. Mm-hmm. Because obviously Ben White last season was, I think, quite possibly the best defender in the championship, not just in the fact that from a defensive point of view, but from a ball progression point of view and an in-possession point of view as well. I think Robin Koch offers you a lot of the same things. He's got an excellent passing range. He's comfortable in possession. He's athletic enough to defend in the wide areas if he's pulled out and isolated against pacey forwards. So he has a lot of the, the qualities that Bielsa likes in a defender. I think Rodrigo is a perhaps a more interesting one because he's a player that you're not quite sure exactly how, what to expect from him under Bielsa. He's he's obviously somebody who's played for Valencia for a few years. He was at Benfica before that. There was a loan spell at Bolton Wanderers at one point, which I do just about remember, I think. And he almost prefers to play as a, a withdrawn striker or a second striker. For Valencia, he played in a 4-4-2 with Maxi Gomez as, if you like, the, the target striker last year. And Rodrigo kind of played around him more than anything else. He, he liked the ball to be played up to Maxi Gomez and then Rodrigo would make the delayed run at an angle to, to take possession and be able to move with the ball at speed. I don't know exactly how he's going to fit from a tactical point of view in the Premier League because... He has a different skill set to Patrick Bamford. I mean, you, you had last season, Leeds went out and they signed Eddie Nketiah on loan and it looked as though that's because Bielsa wanted a pure penalty box striker, but that's not Rodrigo and they spent a lot of money on him. So I'm really intrigued to see exactly how they use him and how he fits into this team. Yeah, it will certainly be one worth uh, keeping an eye on when the English top flight does return in the not-too-distant future. Well, we'll wrap things up in terms of part one and we'll be back very shortly with a look at tactics and football more generally and how the casual observer might view the game from a more tactical perspective. We'll be right back. Welcome back to part two, everyone. We're, we're moving on to the sort of the role of tactics in football more generally and couldn't have a better person to talk about it than Lee Scott. So he used to write for the tactics website Spielfalagro. Uh, one of the co-founders of that site was, of course, René Maric, who is now Marco Rosa's assistant at Borussia Mönchengladbach. Do you think that we'll start seeing more stories like this as clubs begin to perhaps afford more weight to the analytical side of the game then? I, I think that's definitely likely to be the case. I think that Spielfalagro and in particular, yes, you've seen um, René go on to do great things at, at Red Bull Salzburg and now at Bruce and Gladbach. I have no doubt that he'll eventually go on to become a coach in his own right one day. And rightly so. He, he is one of the most intelligent football people that I think I've ever spoken to. But there are others that, that have come through Spiel Verlagering that are doing similar things. You've got Adam Osman Basic, who, who's younger than Rennie, younger than myself, and he's currently, he used to be an analyst at Columbus Crew. 
he's now in the coaching staff at Atlanta United and he's doing a lot of really, really interesting things. You also have Martin Rafait, who, who only really ever wrote for the German version of Spear Villagorum. And he's currently, I believe, he's one of the, the, the hashtag split B team assistants. So the, there's a lot of interesting things going on there in terms of the way that they set up from a tactical point of view. The last one's probably Edward Schmidt, who, who currently is one of the coaches at St. Gallen, the Swiss team who impressed so much last season. But I think that in many ways, this is almost a phenomenon that, that's normal in some other sports. So you take baseball, for example, and I think that football, from a, a, an analysis point of view, and a data point of view, I think football is almost a decade behind baseball and its evolution. And the, there was a point in baseball a few years ago when all of these MLB teams suddenly realized that they wanted to start analysis departments. So whether that was on the back of the money ball the hyper and moneyball I'm not entirely sure but suddenly websites like Baseball Prospectus and Fangraphs had all of their writing staff just taken away from them within the space of a few months and all of these bloggers and writers were suddenly joining professional teams and working analysis departments. I firmly believe that the same thing will happen in football and that was one of our stated aims when we set up Total Football Analysis as well. We, we want to give people who were interested in one day working for a club, we want to give them the platform to develop their, their skills in terms of analysis in terms of the use of data, in terms of breaking down a match from a tactical point of view. And we wanted them to give them the platform to do that. And then the exposure that people in clubs can look at them and see exactly what they're doing. We, we've had a few people so far. I think the most recent one, one of our former analysts has just joined Ferenc Varos, the Hungarian team. Another one a couple of months ago joined Olympic Marseille and is now one of their data scientists, which is a really, really cool job. So I think that this will continue to happen. It's not so much a talent drain. I think that it's something that as people become more comfortable with this kind of role within football as an analyst, as a performance analyst, a tactical analyst, as an opposition analyst, I think it's only natural that they'll look to websites to, to find those people. A really valid point you make there, are valid points, plural, that you make there, Lee, and of course, Ferenc Faros, uh, a, a fresh wound for many of our <laughs> listeners who are Celtic yeah, fans. Yeah, I think um, a few Celtic fans would be upset by yeah, that. Uh. But it was interesting to watch that game last week, and, and Ferenc Faros were tactically superior to Celtic. I thought maybe that's a naive comment to make, but watching it, they, they exposed Celtic's weaknesses, um, and there were a lot of similarities between that performance from Ferenc Faros and the performance from Cluj against Celtic, I thought, um, in the Champions League qualifiers yeah. last year, yeah. in that they just exposed Celtic's defence at Parkhead. And the only difference, I suppose, this time was that there weren't however many thousand Celtic fans in the stadium to, 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 to despair. They were instead despairing at home. But we'll move swiftly on because I don't want to lose too many of our uh, loyal listeners <laughs> who also support Celtic. Uh, terms like XG and PPDA are becoming more and more commonplace in the game. And... You could say in discussions down the pub, now that we can, of course, go down the pub with our mates again. What exactly do terms like those mean? And how can understanding XG and PPDA figures improve a viewer's understanding of the game as a whole, Lee? 
Well, XG is possibly the one that's become most mainstream now. That That's something that we're seeing in mainstream media more and more, even to the point I think match of the day have XG numbers. They don't explain any of it, but they have XG numbers up on the screen after each match. XG is basically shorthand for expected goals. So it's a, a measure to tell you how likely a chance on goal, a shot on goal was to to become a goal so if um, it, it uses historic data going back years and years the people that build these models go a long way back and they calculate the chance of a goal from each specific position actually a shot sorry, from each specific position actually ended up in a goal and that gives you the xg so if you hear about a striker who's got five goals from 7.5 xg for example he scored five goals but he would have been expected from the shots he's taken to have at least seven goals, so 7.5 goals. I know it's arbitrary, but it's got decimal points in it, but the, the idea is the same thing. So it kind of gives you an idea of the quality that each of the shots that each player has taken. The same thing can be said for things like expected assists, which is, works the same way, but for assists, if a player puts a ball to the penalty area, it creates a shot, what is the expectation that would lead to an assist? And I think that these things are useful underlying metrics if you like that kind of give us an idea of being able to judge a player's performance a little bit more and they are becoming a little bit more mainstream and they can't really be used in isolation of anything else if you you go on to ppda that's passes per defensive action now that gives you a measure of how aggressively a team is pressing the opposition so a, a lower value for ppda for example i think that liverpool last season tended to average about a, a eight that's an arbitrary number again but eight passes per defensive action so they were allowing the the opposition to to play eight passes for example before they would press the ball and become more aggressive with it so the lower the ppda the more aggressive the press and again that's just a, an underlying metric that we could use to give you an idea of how aggressively some teams press so the likes of southampton after ralph hasenhutel will have a low ppda because they're an aggressive pressing team the likes of I don't know, Brighton and Graham Potter will have a higher PPDA because they're less of a pressing team. And, and these are things that kind of give you an idea and insight into team style of play as much as anything else. So from an opposition scouting point of view, I find PPDA to be quite telling. If you could look at a PPDA over a 10-week average, for example, and you can see that this team has a PPDA, say, of 10, but again, it's an arbitrary number, but then you dive into that and you can look from, if your team, for example, plays 4-4-2, how many matches has this team that you're analysing played against teams that play 4-4-2? What was their PPDA in, that, that, in those matches? So you can break it down to different levels, if you like, to exactly get an insight into how teams press and how aggressively they press and how that changes depending on the tactical structure that the, the opposition they're facing lines up in. I think if you're talking about what kind of metrics are going to be used next, there, there's a lot of really interesting work going on around something called expected threat. That's taking things like expected goals and expected assists to the next level. Expected threat is a really, really complicated model that isn't available widely anywhere. And it tries to give a value to each action on, on the pitch. So if Fabinho gets the ball on the edge of his penalty area and dribbles past a player, that dribbling past a player carries an expected threat measure. And that tells you that from that single action, 
Liverpool now have a greater chance of goal. And it kind of breaks everything down and gives you an insight into exactly which actions and which areas of the pitch are more likely to lead to your team scoring. It's something that is quite out there and quite... I think quite away from being mainstream and used widely, but there's a lot of work going on by some very, very smart people. My personal favourite, I think, when we talk about these different metrics and new metrics is is parking data. Um, parking is a, a metric that's being created by a company in Germany called Impact, and it's two ex-professional footballers who both played as central midfielders. One of them, I believe, played for Bayer Leverkusen in the German national team. But they were unhappy that when they they checked the newspaper the day after their game and you saw the score out of 10 that they were given, they were never, they felt, given credit for what they did on the pitch. So parking is basically a, a way of measuring how many players a pass or a run from a, from a player takes out of the game. So if you have the ball and you pass the ball sideways, that gives you a parking score of zero for that pass because it hasn't bypassed any opposition players. But if you have the ball in the centre of the pitch and you pass forward and break a line of the opposition, then you bypass, for example, four players. That gives you a score of four. But crucially, it also gives the receiving player a score of four. So that player who's received the ball also receives credit for the fact that he's got into a position to receive a ball that's broken a line and broken a line of the opposition. And what they found through all their research is that the, the more games they see, the team with the higher parking score at the end of the game tends to be the team that's won. And what's really interesting is that the Champions League semi-finals that we had a few weeks ago, three of the four teams that were in that semi-final are some of the few teams who actually use their packet data. So it's obviously something that, that's being used now in a professional level as well, if you like. And clubs are becoming very aware of how important it is in the modern game to have players that can break lines with a pass, but also receive those passes. I would imagine we might have a few listeners or perhaps more than a few listeners who would be keen to develop their own tactical knowledge and understanding of the game. For the benefit of those listeners, how would you advise them, I suppose, in, in simple terms, just to watch a game in order to better understand what is going on and why? What aspects, I suppose, should they be focusing on over the course of the 90 minutes? Yeah, that, that's something that I get asked quite a lot, I think. And, and first, before I answer it, if, if anybody wants to know more or, or wants any help in that regard, feel free to get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm always happy to, to help people who are just starting out that want a little bit of advice on exactly how to go about it. But what I always tend to advise people to do is to pick a game. Doesn't matter what the game is, as long as you can get the game, preferably downloaded on your computer. It's usually the easiest way, or even a match that's coming up on TV. Pick a game where you don't support either team. Then within that game, pick one team. It doesn't matter if it's a home team or the away team, it could be either. So for that one team, what you want to do is have a notebook, watch the game, and first of all, before you do anything else, just watch what they do when they've got possession. So which players are progressing the ball for them, which players are passing the ball for them forwards. What's the formation? I mean, formations are arbitrary, so we'll, we'll talk about team shape instead. What's the team shape in possession? Is it a 4-3-3? Is the left back getting higher than the right back? Are the central midfielders getting on higher lines of one another? Is it a, a number six who's dropping between the central defenders to split them? 
just look at these things in isolation first of all. Do that for the first half. Then in the second half, flip it. Same team, but now just look at what they're doing defensively. What's the, what's the team shape now without the ball? If it was a 4-3-3 in possession, chances are it's something like a 4-5-1 out of possession. Why is that? How are they pressing the ball? Who's pressing the ball? Who's trying to win the ball back aggressively? Which fullbacks are are perhaps more likely to come inside and follow players inside and, and do that for the full game? So one half attack and one half defend and then look at what you've got in terms of notes. Now, eventually, if you do this a couple of times, what I would say is you move on and you do for, for the next game you choose or the third game, for example do choose one team but in the first half do both attack and defensive so you're taking notes on each phase do it for the whole game so you've got a full picture of their, their in possession and out possession structures formation systems, everything and you know exactly what they're trying to do eventually you will get to a point where you can naturally do that without taking notes for both teams. So you're now watching the game a little bit differently through a different lens, which is something that makes football so unique to me, that people, you can do that. I do that. I can't watch a game without viewing it this way now. But eventually you'll get to a point where you're able to watch it and you'll understand which each team is trying to do in possession and out of possession in terms of systems, what matchups are working, what they've looked to change. And then gradually you'll find yourself being able to do it. But then if you want to take that and start writing about it, then just go and start a blog. Start writing. Do it anywhere you like. There are plenty of places on the internet that would take people to to write with them and write for them and look to give you help and advice. And if you do so, and if any of you listeners do actually start a blog or do start writing in this way, feel free again to get in touch with me on Twitter and send me some of your work, and I'd be more than happy to get my read. Really helpful, Lee, and I'm sure that the listeners will appreciate that. You've broken it down into a really um, simple technique there and, and how to watch a game of football. And I do think that it's like anything, I mean, one of the, the sentences that I live by is that the more you know about something, the more you enjoy it. Um, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, even historical, not even talking necessarily about football, the more I learn about, um, you know, a certain aspect of history, a certain period in time in history, and the more, I'm, the more I enjoy um, hearing about that and speaking about that with other people. And the same can be said with, with football, with, with any game that you're watching. Obviously, the tactical side of it is only one aspect, but you've also got any exactly. kind of narratives or something, or you know, if there's a rivalry there, yeah. why is there a rivalry? And the more you know about games, the more you can enjoy them, and that goes tactically and, and, and backstories, as I said there, Lee. So thank you very much for, for giving the listeners that advice. And, and as you said there, Lee, you're, you're more than willing to... For people yeah, to of course. You. What, what is uh, your Twitter handle? Would you like to give your Twitter handle so that people can, can give you a follow? Yeah, of course. It's, it's at FM Analysis, and it tends to be the best way to get in touch with me. I always remember um, way back when I wasn't doing as much writing. We've talked about Rennie Maric before, but from speaking to Rennie at the time, he used to, on a Saturday evening, he used to analyse three full games. So the games would be played, he'd get the video, and he would do three matches himself in an evening, and he would have 
everything down to the nth degree about how those teams had played, the, the different progressions, exactly what the coaches were trying to do from a tactical point of view. And he used to watch the games. He got so good at it, he used to watch the games in double time. So he would speed them up and just watch the shape, basically. So you're not even really watching the game. You're just watching what happens in terms of movement, the, the occupation of space, the creation of space, the emptiness of space. And through doing that, he just absolutely understood it and you could ask him any question about the game and he just had this recall which I always remember being absolutely amazed by. I've got to the point where I can watch the matches on one and a half time speed and, and that's taxing enough for me if you like to be able to to pay enough attention to get the detail but he used to watch three full games and double time and then have absolute recall. It's absolutely no surprise he's gone on to the point he's gone on to to be honest. Fantastically well as you see Lee in that interview with with Rafa Honigstein on on the Athletic when when he spoke to Rennie Maric, was um, it was clear that he was he was quite a humble individual who appreciated everything that had happened to him, but he was also an extremely intelligent person who, yeah. um, as you suggested, Lee just knows so much about the game. Fascinating character, uh, and that will take us on nicely to to part three in a more European focus. We'll have a quick break now, but we'll be right back, so don't go anywhere. Thanks. Fascinating first two sections of the of the podcast there, listening to these sort of deconstruct everything. And if I can uh, interpret um, the rest of the Road to Nowhere's podcast facial expressions, it, uh, all of us really enjoyed listening to that. Um, so I'm going to ask you to apply your theory now from a sort of tactical perspective. What did you make of this year's Champions League final? And I guess in in a nutshell as well, where was the game won and lost? Lee, I think that. A lot of people were, were almost disappointed, but the, the final of the Champions League, a lot of people almost expected more. It was almost as if something didn't work from a tactical perspective because everything we'd seen in the lead-up to that, Bayern Munich, of course, were were absolutely incredibly dominant in the lead-up to that final, and we expected more of the same. I think that a lot of people perhaps don't give Thomas Tuchel at PSG the, the credit that he almost deserves. He's a coach who I've really, really enjoyed from a tactical perspective from back at his time with Mainz. I, I remember at the time, this was before Total Football Analysis and everything else, I, I was writing for a Bayern Munich website and writing tactical analysis of Bayern Munich games, and that was purely because Pep Guardiola at the time was in charge of Bayern Munich and I wanted to watch every Guardiola game and write about it. And I remember there was a match he played in against Mainz in which Thomas Tuchel changed the tactical system three times in the first half and twice in the second half. And each time Guardiola then combated that with a tactical change of his own. It was almost like you hear about football tactics being like chess. And this was the only match I've ever seen that genuinely was like a chess match between the two coaches. And I think at Borussia Dortmund as well, Thomas Tuchel was very interesting, very, very good from a tactical point of view. And at PSG, he's possibly become less of that. I think that he's had to become more of a man-manager because obviously you have the personalities of Neymar and Bappe and Cavani and all these different people within that PSG squad. His tactical interpretation of how they play on the pitch has always taken a back seat. So I think that in the first half of the Champions League final, there were some interesting points from a tactical point of view. I think PSG were very intelligent with the way that they played out of possession. We all know how dangerous Bayern's left flank is with Alfonso Davies and the pace that he has and his attacking ability from left back. 
PSG lined up specifically to deny him the ball. So whenever Bayer would try to build up from the back, PSG pressed him diagonally. So Di Maria would press from the, the right-hand side for PSG, which was Alfonso Davies' side. He would press the centre-backs diagonally to prevent the ball from being played out there. And that kind of forced Bayern to play over to the opposite side of the pitch, where, yes, they had Joshua Kimmich, who is a fantastic footballer in his own right, but he's not the, the athletic threat, if you like, that Alfonso Davies was. So this was kind of the pattern of the match. PSG were looking to play in transition in the first half. They were looking to, to win turnovers and then to hit space very quickly, either to allow Kylian Mbappe, who, who kind of played a role that I don't think a lot of us expected, almost as a wide midfielder at times, as opposed to being a striker where you want him on the shoulder of the last defender. They would look to quickly hit the spaces around that through Di Maria. They would look to hit the spaces to release Mbappe or hit Neymar to feet. And, and Bayern were quite capable of defending that, if you like. I think in the second half, we saw Hansi Flick and Bayern Munich, from a tactical point of view, they, they became more nuanced. So Joshua Kimmich started playing that inverted role a little bit more, where he would come inside and occupy the central spaces. That allowed Leo Goretzka to get higher. That allowed Thomas Muller to come over in the half spaces, where he could receive the ball a little bit better. And that movement from Kimmich just seemed to release everything. So suddenly Thiago was able to get on the ball and play line-breaking passes because the the PSG midfield originally PSG looked like they had the advantage in midfield because it was a 4-3-3 three midfielders for PSG against a 4-2-3-1 so two midfielders really for Bayern Munich and you expect that PSG would be able to dominate but because of that movement from Kimmich in the side suddenly Bayern Munich were able to to not only counter that that position that numerical superiority in the middle that PSG had but because Goretzka was moving beyond them, he was completely breaking the line, breaking the, the midfield structure of PSG and those passes were suddenly able to get through and I think that what disappointed me more than anything else was that Thomas Tuchel didn't do anything from a tactical point of view to combat that I mean, we, we all know that he waited quite a while to make the first substitution. There was a lot of talk about the players that he took on, leaving Mauro Cardio on the bench when you want a goal, that kind of thing. But he didn't actually physically make any changes from a tactical point of view that would have then opened the game back up from PSG's point of view. So I think that Hansi Flick very much became almost came away from that match as the, as the winner, if you like, not only from a scoreline, yes, he's got a trophy, a medal, everything else, but from a tactical battle point of view. And these are two coaches who've known each other for a long time. They've coached against each other in different youth ranks and things like that. So they know each other inside and out. And I think that Hansi Flick very much came off as a winner between the two coaches. And I suppose just keeping up with the European theme, uh, tactically, which... European side has fascinated you the most over the last decade and why? I think that's, that's a big question. I know, um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there have been various teams over the last decade. I mean, I've already talked about that Bayern Munich team that Pep Guardiola had. Um, the way that he was able to, to move from Barcelona, yes, he took a break, but he moved from Barcelona to Bayern Munich and initially when he made that move, he thought that he could just take his game model wholesale and drop it into German football and, and that would be it. And he would have success and he would be great and his Barcelona team were great so this Bayern Munich team would be great. 
what really fascinated me was the fact that he very quickly realised that that wasn't the case because he came up against counter-pressing for the first time and, and suddenly these teams, these small teams were so aggressive and in their face that the, the build-up play from Bayern Munich with that Barcelona game model just wasn't working and you saw Pep Guardiola then become more transitional he would play, yes, the, the inverted fullbacks, yes, Philip Lamb and David Alaba, the positions they took up were fascinating, but everything became more transitional, and that Bayern Munich time side were, were a leap for me from that perspective. But there are a lot of other teams that have been equally fascinating. When you, you think about at the moment, so just going back for the last couple of years, Atalanta and, and Serie A and Gasparini have been one of the most fascinating teams from a tackle, tactical point of view in terms of what they do, in terms of their overloading wide areas, almost leaving the central midfield position completely open and they overload and play through the wide areas in possession. You look at Sassuolo at the moment and their Deserbi and they have elements of positional play that a lot of people don't see that much but this is something that Pep Guardiola has came out and said in the press that quite often when he gets time off he makes sure he watches Sassuolo play because he finds their their way of playing so intriguing the way they progress the ball, the way they occupy space, the way they move the other team around with the ball. I think that there are so many different facets to football that the way that you answer that question about which teams you've enjoyed from a tactical perspective, almost it depends what you enjoy from a football perspective. I mean, we could, we could talk about Man City in the Premier League and Guardiola, again, a fascinating tactical evolution. Same with Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool, again, that's why I wrote the book, because he evolved his tactical game model from Borussia Dortmund and he did so to the point where he he did so in order to to ensure that he took advantage of the opportunities that he saw in English football, but also to combat the problems that English football gave that game model. So I think that things are, are evolving and changing that often. That there are so many interesting points of view. I mean, this season, I'm really looking forward to watching Ralph Hasenhutl at Southampton because he's another one who's really interesting from a, a tactical model point of view. Same thing, Mikel Arteta at Arsenal. I think there's a lot of interesting aspects and it's really intriguing to see how he develops as a coach. So there's lots of different sides, I think, throughout Europe. I, I tend to watch a lot of teams. If you want a more niche answer, then I, I'd suggest that anybody watches Bodo Glimt in the Norwegian League if they get a chance to because they, they seem to be putting five, six goals past opposition teams left, right and centre and they've got a really interesting group of players playing a really interesting attack in brand of football at the moment. And must be one of the only teams in world football with a forward slash. In the middle. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> Michael, you had another question, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I mean, it's interesting that you said about Atalanta and when you were talking before, I mean, I've watched them a lot this season and read a bit on them tactically. And when you're talking about that parking stat before with one of the stats of the diagonal passes, uh, I would say that they rarely play square passes. So it'd be really interesting to see what their parking stats would be. But yeah. just going back to the um, managers and Guardiola, Klopp, Bielsa, of course, are you writing about? They, they all a lot of their success, they had a lot of success in other European leagues prior to coming to England. And I'm just wondering, you know, there is, are you surprised that all of them have been able to impose their own game in England? Or would you say it's more of a misconception that certain styles don't work in other countries, which is, again, a bit of a pub debate sometimes, but, you know, talked about a lot of the time amongst fans. Yeah, I think it's really interesting when you think about it from that point of view, because 
England is one of the few top five leagues, or the only top five league, if you like, where the majority of the coaches within that league come from other countries. If you look at Italy, the majority of the coaches in the Serie A are Italian. If you look at La Liga, the majority are Spanish. If you look at the Bundesliga, German. If you look at Liga, French. And then you look at England, and it's not the case. I think that there are some coaches who come to play in the Premier League who, who perhaps have had success to a relative extent in their own leagues that they've been in before and they struggle a little bit but they're the ones that I always think of as being less tactically flexible. I think that what sets likes to clock Bielsa, well not, not Bielsa actually, let's take Bielsa out of it because I don't think Bielsa will adapt to anything. I think that the way that Bielsa wants to play is the way that Bielsa wants to play and to hell with everything else. And the fact that he has had success in English football is purely down to the fact that it's executed so well and his preparation in terms of the individual training that players get, the individual tactical instructions that players get and the way that the players are made to, to understand their role within the team is so specific and so good that it's something that just almost gives them success from that point of view. But if we take Klopp and, and Guardiola, they're two coaches, and I've already touched upon it, that they were willing to adapt their style. Klopp came into to the Premier League, and you, you'll all remember yourselves when Klopp signed for Liverpool. You couldn't read an article or a blog post or a tweet or anything without hearing the word gegenpressing. Everyone thought that Jurgen Klopp was going to come to Liverpool and play the same high-tempo, aggressive, pressing football that he had at Borussia Dortmund. And perhaps he did try that to an extent, but he very quickly realised that it maybe wasn't as effective in the English game. So he was willing to make changes. Suddenly, now, when you look at this iteration of Liverpool that have just won the league, we talked about it earlier on, and they've kind of gone away from that transitional style of play where everything almost occurs in chaos and you have players within the Liverpool team who thrive in chaos like the Jordan Henderson will will press all day, he'll break for the penalty area all day but they also have control now, they, they have control with the movement of Trent Ar- Alexander-Arnold in that half space where he dictates the game, they have control from a player like Van Dijk they have control from a player like Fabinho who operates central reference points through which all the rest of the team could kind of rotate and move. And you could have, they're almost a blend of that transitional style with control, which is really interesting. And the same thing goes for Pep Guardiola. When he first came to Manchester City, it was all about inverted fullbacks. So it didn't matter who the fullbacks at Manchester City were, they were going to become inverted fullbacks. It was going to be great. They would be like David Alba and Philip Lamb. It would all work. It didn't work. His first season, that didn't work at all. He took time to acclimatise to the English game, but he adapted. He changed his style of play. Yes, they've spent money on players, but it's not just about spending money on players. You've got to not only spend money on the right players, but you've also got to know how to play them from a tactical point of view, or else you're just spending money for the sake of spending money. And that's not what Manchester City have done under under Pep Guardiola. They've adapted their style of play to this point where I think that this last season will have disappointed them a lot. They obviously didn't win the league, despite a lot of people will talk about underlying stats to say that Man City were the dominant side from an underlying statistics point of view, which is true. But on the pitch, they didn't win those matches. Liverpool did. So Liverpool ran away with the title and should have been 
more dominant and won the title even earlier, obviously not just with the COVID break, but Liverpool were a little bit slow when football restarted, whereas Man City weren't. I think that this coming season we're going to see a comeback from Manchester City and they'll come out the blocks wanting to prove something to themselves as well as everybody else. And I think we're in for another fascinating season. But I think that the fact that these coaches are able to come into the English game and, and have this kind of success with different game models shows that they're intelligent enough to recognise what works and what doesn't work, but they're also brave enough to accept that it has to change. So it's really interesting, sort of the differences you've highlighted and the changes that Klopp and Guardiola have made. And I guess without giving sort of too much of the book away, sort of what are the, you mentioned some of the differences Klopp had and what what's the motivation behind these changes? What is it about English football that forced him to base his sign more around sort of like Van Dijk and have more control? I think it became more of a case of understanding that football didn't always have to be as transitional as it was at Borussia Dortmund. I'm, I'm sure that you guys, a lot of the listeners, will remember that Borussia Dortmund side. And what I always remember is they got to this point towards the end of Klopp's reign when if they had the ball in their own half and there, there wasn't an easy passing option, there wasn't a vertical passing option because they always looked for the vertical pass. It's similar to Atalanta. You touched on Atalanta earlier on and, and they don't look for the sideways passes. They look forward or they look diagonal or, or to hell with it. Same thing with, with Borussia Dortmund and Jürgen Klopp. It got to the point where they would play these passes in the space. It, it was directed to the corners of the pitch. If it went out for a throw-in, fine. If it just went to the corner of the pitch, fine. And they would quite happily put the ball in these areas when they didn't have attacking players with a hope of getting that ball. What they did have, though, was the willingness to allow the opposition to collect that ball and then they would press them so aggressively and try to win the ball back close to the opposition goal. And that almost became a playmaking tactic from Jurgen Klopp and, and that Borussia Dortmund side because their press was so well coordinated and, and so well taught in the training ground. More often than not, these teams that were receiving this ball close to their own goal, they would absolutely panic because you would look up and there would be four yellow shirts running towards your full pelt. So that became something that kind of, I think, defined the latter stages of Klopp's time at Borussia Dortmund more than anything else. I think when he came to, to England, when he came to Liverpool, he started to realise that not only was that high-tempo all-the-time football perhaps not working because there were teams in Germany at the time, a lot of teams counter-pressed. That was the kind of the same thing that Pep Guardiola found, that he would play Hoffenheim counter-pressed, Freiburg, they don't do so much anymore, but they counter-pressed, might counter-pressed. You came to England and you're playing against Burnley. Burnley don't counter-press. Burnley will sit in two banks to four and they will shuffle side to side and create deny you any space in between their lines and say, come on, break us down. And that transitional style of play just wasn't as effective for Liverpool. And then you had the, the fact that they have so much of a qualitative advantage over the opposition much of the time, but they have possession of the ball. You've got the, the way that Roberto Firmino works on dropping from the 9 to the 10 space to receive the ball and how that creates space for Mane and for Salah to come inside from the wide areas. And suddenly you've got all these different things that you could do from a tactical perspective, but to make it work, you have to control the game a little bit more, control the tempo, control the game state. And I think that Klopp figured out that with the likes of Van and Fabinho and, and 
Trent Alexander-Arnold making those movements, suddenly he had the basis to have the best of both worlds because they still counter-press the first transition when they lose the ball in the final third. They, they still look to win the ball back. But in possession, they can also afford to slow things down a little bit and move the opposition around with their rotations and movements in that great space. I think that Jurgen Klopp figured out very early on in English football that there was a different way of playing and I don't think a lot of people expected that from Jurgen Klopp because what you see with him is what you get from a personal point of view. He is larger than life and loud and and funny and he makes you laugh and you, you think that this is a person who perhaps coaches from an emotional perspective more than anything else but he's also a deep thinker about the game and not a lot of people gave him the credit he deserved for that yeah i know i'm generalizing here but you know given what we've been talking about with the managers in the top five leagues and their nationalities respectively you know we're used to seeing certain patterns of play or so we think in la liga the bundesliga serie a and so on and the stereotype in the premier league goes you know that it's physical it's fast it's open it's end-to-end but do you think the Premier League it does exhibit its own hallmarks beyond that? Maybe more sort of technically respectable or tactically respectable ones, you might say? Or would you say, you know, it's simply a product of having too many foreign managers that it's kind of lost what identity it may have had? Yeah, I think it's really interesting when you think about it from that perspective, because you think about the stereotypes of the other top five leagues, if you like. You, you think about the Bundesliga and people from an outside perspective that they don't watch a lot of German football, they still think gegenpressing. They, they still think everything is aggressive and fast in your face. And some teams are to a point. But then you have the likes of Schalke and Union Berlin who who are less refined from a tactical point of view and more direct and they look to play that way. You look at Serie A and it, everyone still thinks, oh, Serie A, more in defensive football. But I... I challenge you to watch a game played by Atalanta or Sassuolo or, or even Roma under Paolo Fonseca and it's not boring defensive football anymore. La Liga isn't tiki-taka. If you watch Getafe or Levante or Leganes, it's not tiki-taka football. The same thing is true in the Premier League to a point, but I think you've almost got a melting point in the a pot in the Premier League where there are so many different tactical styles that you can almost find a little bit of everything in the Premier League. You you look at Southampton, Southampton under Ralph Hazen, who told have already talked about, I'm really looking forward to seeing them next season. Aggressive, pressing football, kind of like the, the what we'd expect to see in Germany, which makes sense since Ralph Hasenhutl is an ex Augsburg and, and RB Leipzig coach, so it makes sense to that point. You look at positional play from Mikel Arteta, who obviously learned under Pep Guardiola, there are elements of positional play in what Graham Potter does at, at Brighton. You look at Jurgen Klopp with this more controlled and transitional and mixed style of play. There are so many different ways that these teams can play from a tactical perspective that you always have games where you can have a little bit of everything. I mean, you look at Burnley under Sean Dyche and for all that his faults and all their faults and all the fact that it's industrial football, it's still fascinating from a tactical point of view. He's got a team that's so well coached in a 4-4-2 that they know their roles exactly. You look at what Chris Wilder has taken to the Premier League with Sheffield United, and initially it was all about overlapping fullbacks, but there's so much more to Sheffield United than that from a tactical perspective. So I think that 
in terms of having an identity, I think that the Premier League almost doesn't have an identity from a tactical point of view because it's become this this entity which is so multinational and multifaceted and multicultural that, that suddenly you've got so many different tactical styles and that's what makes games so fascinating for me. You could sit down and watch Everton, for example, play... I don't know, Brighton this season, you'll see completely different things from a tactical perspective, but things that you'll recognise from elsewhere. That's what makes it so interesting to watch. Yeah, Lee, I think I speak for all of us when I say I could listen to you all night speaking about tactics. You speak about what is, for people who are maybe not familiar with the more tactical side of the game, it can be quite daunting. It doesn't make any sense. And and, and you've managed to explain it in such simple terms and, and so elegantly. So thank you, Lee, for coming on and do go and do go and buy Lee's book listeners um if you've enjoyed listening to him do check out total football analysis as well uh, and do give him a follow on twitter if you have been inspired um in any way shape or form um you know he's Lee said he's, he's more than happy to to hear from people so do take him up on that offer because he's clearly an extremely intelligent individual he's spoken and waxed lyrical about Rennie Maric earlier but I think um he also deserves to be spoken about in, in the same way so thank you very much for giving up your uh, Wednesday evening Lee thank you for being so open uh, and forthcoming with your answers they've been, I'm sure I speak for all of us when I say they've been extremely in depth uh, but also easy to follow which is what you're looking for in any podcast guest, you've been an absolute joy Lee so thank you once again, do you have anything else you'd like to add before we, we sign off Lee? No, just to, to say thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed coming on and uh, keep up the great work with the podcast. But I think that there's a lot of misconception around tactics in football. You, you said that it, it can be broken down and was simplified. And, and that's something that's important to to understand. If if anybody listening has got an interest in the tactical side of football, don't be put off by, by some of the terms you see. I mean, most of the terms can be simplified to a point. Just just approach it from your own point of view and give it the time that you need to, to break it down a little bit in your own mind and I'm sure you'll enjoy it from that point of view as well. I really encourage anybody to do that I mean, if they're interested in football because it's a really interesting way to see the game. But thanks again very much, guys, for, for having me on and thanks for the questions. Really good, insightful questions. I, I really enjoyed it. Perfect. Thank you, Lee. One point to add, I would say, I did say to Paul that I wasn't going to mention this on the podcast because he's quite a shy individual and doesn't like to, to shout from the rooftops about his own achievements. But Paul has landed um, an internship role with La Liga Lowdown. Paul, do you want to just give us a quick summary of uh, what you'll be doing? Because it's fantastic news and, and thoroughly deserved. Yeah, you'll, you'll mostly um, experience my internship through their social media accounts, um, at least by firstly, um, but hopefully potentially make a move more into the writing side and even podcasting. But um, I'd highly recommend anyone to go and check out La Liga Lowdown as well because um, it's, a, it's a high quality institution that I only feel too lucky to be part of so um yeah do check them out on twitter at la liga Loda. Yeah, and, and Babo has promised me that he won't go running away from our own podcast too soon anyway so he's he's, he's still going to be uh popping up every fortnight for, for the foreseeable future so that's only a good thing uh, and all that's left to say is uh, thank you to the listener hopefully you've enjoyed this bonus episode uh, we'll be back towards the end of september fresh for the new season plenty to speak about we're not going to mention a certain Mr Macy because that, that would get us into another <laughs> entirely different podcast episode we can, we can maybe do that later down the line when 
Thank you once again, Lee, and thank you to you, the listener. We'll see you at the end of September. Goodbye.